Hi One Hope, we're so sorry we can't be with you in person this Sunday, but we hope this one day soon that will happen because we love being with you. I'll be preaching and I hope that it's going to be a message that strengthens your faith. And I hope too it'll be something that you can invite a friend to watch as well. We're going to actually look at the process of awakening when someone comes from unbelief right through to realizing Jesus Christ is the answer and I need him in my life. So we think it'll be helpful for you. We trust that you'll enjoy it. And God bless you. We'll see you soon. Hi everyone, and let me add my welcome to that which has been given. I'm Lex Loisides, and along with my uh, wife Jo, I lead the team at Jubilee in Clough Street in the city centre of Cape Town. A special welcome to you if you've joined us from our online alpha, and I'm just trusting that for you and for everyone listening to this message that your, your faith will be strengthened today by it. I'm going to be looking at just one verse, a verse of uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It's in chapter 5 and it's verse uh, 14. Halfway through his exhortation to believers to live a lifestyle that's consistent with what they say they believe, he suddenly gives this quotation. And it's a statement that reminds them of the power of the change that's happened in their lives and therefore they ought to live in accordance with it and it's this awake O sleeper and rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you it's not a direct bible quote although it summarizes as you can hear biblical themes awakening resurrection uh, revelation, enlightenment, light coming where there's been darkness and so on. Isaiah prophesied about the coming of Jesus saying, Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Some scholars think Paul is quoting a popular Christian worship song of the day. The English translation certainly format this as poetry rather than prose. And the quote is a punchy summary of the church's message to the world. And it's just as relevant for us today as it was then. It says there is more to life. You're right to search for answers. You're right to hope for something better. And that your hunger for meaning is a desire that can be satisfied. And the claim that I'm making today is that in this message is that the fulfillment that you're looking for is possible. The longing for satisfaction that exists in the very core of your being is found in Jesus Christ. That fulfillment is found in Christ. John Calvin, writing roughly around the year 1550, ages ago, said of this verse, this is the ordinary message which is every day delivered by preachers of the gospel. Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now, before I move on, there's an immediate problem, and it's this. How dare we presume to tell other people that they're asleep and that they need to be awakened and that we're the ones to do it? Isn't that presumption? Isn't that just arrogance? Doesn't that kind of violate the desire for self-discovery and coming to our own truth in our own way? I'm going to ask you just to put that objection for one, to one side for the moment so that you allow me to make my case for Christ first. Because I agree, if this is just empty religion 
I mean, if it's just, I don't know, some kind of strange social control, if this is all just bluster and bigotry, then it is ridiculous and it should be rejected. It would be arrogance and you'd be right to think so. But if it's true, <laughs> if it's true, if there's just a slim possibility that I haven't been deceived and that it's true and that our eternal future depends upon it, then it's not only not arrogance, but it could be the best news you've ever heard in your life. So pause the issue of presumption until we've looked at this verse together. And then at least, at the very least, you can say, okay, I gave an opportunity to hear the Christian perspective. I did that. A second reason why I'm asking you to give me the benefit of the doubt on the arrogance issue is because of this whole business of experience. And I know it can be irritating when someone says to you, ah, yes, but you see, I've experienced this and you haven't experienced this, and therefore, you know, let me tell you. Although there is some truth in that. When we're learning something fresh, it does require a degree of patience and perhaps teachability, humility even. Let me illustrate this. Back in the early 90s, Joe and I were visiting my parents in America, and my brother brought along some photocopies of what looked like just kind of a confusing, compressed, squiggly mess on the printed pages. But he said that if you kind of let your eyes go slightly out of focus, as though you're looking through the page, a very vivid and clear 3D picture emerges, as though it's sunken inside the page, or as though it's reaching out from the page. But you had to kind of let your eyes relax. I don't know if you've seen these things. And then it kind of suddenly appears. Well. It took a bit of time, but one by one, different ones were saying, oh, wow, yeah, it's a, that's a horse, or that's whatever, that's a car. My dad couldn't get it. He just couldn't get it, and he was getting frustrated. And then finally, he had a breakthrough. And as soon as he had a breakthrough, he became an evangelist. As soon as he could see that image, he would go to the others. And so you had the situation where some people were saying, this is amazing, look at this. And other people were looking at exactly the same thing and seeing nothing at all. When you see it, <laughs> you want to tell others. You can't really help yourself. It's not necessarily arrogance. One of the reasons why the old hymn, the song Amazing Grace, is still being sung after hundreds of years is that so many thousands, in fact, even millions, know exactly what it means when they sing, I, was one, I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. There are millions of people who say, That's, I know exactly what that is. That is my experience through Christ. Leonard Cohen in his song, Almost Like the Blues, sang, There is no God in heaven, and there is no hell below. So says the great professor of all there is to know. But I've had the invitation that a sinner can't refuse, and it's almost like salvation. It's almost like the blues. I don't know if Leonard Cohen ever accepted the invitation, but I do know this. Our confidence in calling a dying world to come to life is in the fact that we ourselves have experienced this new life. And it is 
wonderful. We didn't deserve it. We don't deserve it still. But I do want to talk about how this happens. So I've organized my material under two headings. The sleeper waking and Christ shining. Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So the sleeper waking first. I mean, normally speaking, you know, sleep is a good thing. I don't know what time of day you're watching this, but sleep is a good thing. We need sleep. Sleep reminds us that our strength is limited. We need rhythm. We need refreshing. Uh, we're not God. We can't go without sleep. But there's also a negative kind of sleep, the sleep of ignorance or the sleep of being hoodwinked that keeps us lulled or a sleep of just lethargy and apathy. Augustine, the great uh, African theologian, one of the most influential voices in the history of Christianity, uh, wrote out his conversion story in a book called Confessions. And they're written in the form of, you know, prayers of confession to God. He wrote this. I didn't have an answer to anything when you called to me, awake, you that sleep and arise from the dead and Christ shall give you light, nor to you showing me on every side that what you said was true. I was convicted by the truth and had nothing at all to reply except the drawling and drowsy words, presently, lo, presently, leave me a little while. But, he says, presently, presently, had no present, and leave me a little while, went on for a long while. The call to follow Christ to Augustine felt like an interruption in his life. And often the call to follow Christ does feel like some kind of interruption. He wanted to roll over and stay sleeping. And that's just like us. And he's famous for praying this prayer, Lord, make me pure, but not yet. Just a little while more. In all seriousness, it's better for you to wake up now while you can find the forgiveness of your sins than to wake up when it's too late and the opportunity is gone. John Chrysostom was a 4th century Greek preacher born and raised in Antioch and then moved across to Constantinople, the center of the Byzantine Empire. And his preaching was so popular that some 800 or so of his sermons are still available today. History remembers him as Chrysostomos, golden-mouthed. His preaching was uncompromising. He had no qualms at all about calling a spade a spade and exposing society's sins. He says this, It is foolishness and a public madness, I it's socially irresponsible, to fill your cupboards with clothing and allow men who are created in God's image and likeness to stand naked and trembling with the cold so that they can hardly hold themselves upright. You are large and fat and holding drinking parties until late at night and sleep in a warm, soft bed. And do you not think of how you must give an account for your misuse of the gifts of God. He's a real like punchy preacher. His personal integrity, his confidence in Christ, and his refusal to ignore the sins that he saw in society caused an awakening 
in Constantinople that attracted thousands to the church. It actually became the basis for the building of the world's largest church building in that day and for centuries after, the Hagia Sophia, which was in Constantinople, now called Istanbul. Now, I'm giving some background on him because his comments on our verse are a bit shocking, fascinating, but a little bit, again, up in your face. We're not used to seeing dead bodies. He, he says, so it shows us a cultural difference between his day and ours. He says, by the sleeper and the dead, he means the man that is in sin, for he both exhales noisome odors like the dead and is inactive like one that is asleep and like him sees nothing but is dreaming and forming fancies and illusions. Chrysostom's conversion shook his generation, his preaching shook that generation awake. Now, I'm sure we live in gentler times, or maybe I'm not sure that we live in gentler times, I don't know. But what are life's nudges that kind of could wake us up spiritually? What might get us searching for answers? It could be that you've heard a preacher like Chrysostom blasting out the truth, but there are many. Let me just give you three common nudges. First of all, guilt. Now, I know that religion is sometimes accused of creating guilt, of making it up, but that's not what the gospel does. The gospel message diagnoses a problem that is really there, already there. It tells us that our problem is sin, the things that we've done wrong, all of us have done wrong. And the answer is that Jesus Christ came to this earth, lived a perfect life without sin, and then died on the cross in our place for our sins. He received in, his, in himself, in his body, the punishment for your sins and my sins. And then on the third day, he rose again from the dead. So there is a solution to the problem of guilt and the problem of shame and the problem of sin, and it's Jesus and what he did on the cross for you and in his resurrection. It's possible to live a guilt-free life, not by denying or trying to suppress guilt, but by waking up and receiving the effectual forgiveness of your sins, the satisfaction before God of your sins and your complete forgiveness and confidence in your relationship with God as a result thereby. We repent of sin, we turn from sin, and we put our trust in Jesus Christ. So guilt can be a nudge that just kind of wakes you momentarily. Secondly, difficult circumstances. Sometimes things happen in life that you can't solve and you, you can't change. A death, a trial, a loss <clears throat> of some kind. No one wants tragedy, but tragedy does show us how fragile we actually are. And we are fragile. Some people in those moments turn away from God as though it was almost evidence that he wasn't there. Others turn to him for help and find comfort, maybe for the very first time in their lives, in God. And so it's okay to turn to God. The Bible describes this world as full of these kind of difficulties and tragedies. It describes this world as fallen and as broken. 
And when the brokenness of the world touches our lives, it's a good thing to turn to God. It can nudge us awake. And thirdly, friends. Someone you know tries to commend Christianity to you and they're saying, hey, look, I'm a follower of Jesus. This is wonderful. You need to find out about this. And, and that's effectively what happened to me. And you, you might say to yourself, oh, the friend then must be very knowledgeable or selfless or super holy or exalted in some special kind of way. But that's not how it works. The friend isn't perfect, but the friend is just a bridge to Christ, to help you across to Christ. And at the very least, it nudges you awake. He pokes you in the arm. It gets your attention. Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. <clears throat> and then secondly, Christ shining. You know, what happens when the light of Christ shines on you? What takes place? Well, each person's story is different, but I want to look at how does this actually happen? Happen. There's usually a process that leads up to the moment when a person finally decides to become a follower of Jesus. And the role a friend can play can only be a supporting role. The main person is, of course, Jesus himself. Maybe it begins by listening, or not just listening, but hearing in a, in a different way. It could be, as I said, through conversation or through sermons or through a book maybe, you've read or through circumstances that seem to lead you to this place and this point. But it progresses until it's clearly between you and Jesus himself. Ultimately, if it's real conversion, it will, however the journey is for you, it brings you into a place where it's actually finally between you and Jesus. Jesus described conversion as being born again. He said, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And he's talking about this, this transition from sleep to waking, from death to life, from darkness to light. You could say we are consciously experience a, uh, we are consciously experience a gradual spiritual awakening, but then we realize that actually, in fact, it's a new birth and the center of it is Christ himself blazing in glory and in beauty and in truth. And this was true in my own experience. Let me give you a few of my nudges. Maybe this will help. As a child of 11 or so, uh, we used to, uh, in, when, where I grew up in England, we had a, 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 quite a, a large garden that was in, on two levels. And on the upper level of the garden, there was a, a, a decent-sized fish pond. And in the winter, that fish pond would always freeze over. And it was great fun because we had quite a long patio, a concreted section outside the back of the house. We would take the ice from the pond, we'd crush it down, and my brother and I, and we would create this kind of ice rink thing where we'd, we'd run and we'd just we'd skid all the way along and then smash into the fence on the, on the other side of the house. And it was great fun. And in the winter, it was great because the, the, the day before, the ice is compacted and even smoother and you'd add to it new ice and it'd really be fantastic to slide on. And then one night as I'm in bed, I suddenly had this panicky thought, what if my mum goes out, slips on the ice and breaks her arm? And I, I was struck with fear and I didn't know what to do. Uh, so I, I prayed 
And I, I didn't come from a family that believed in God, so I, I, I didn't think God existed. But, I, but I, I said, God, if you exist, if you're really there, then tomorrow morning when I go out and check, would all the ice be gone so that my mum won't go out and slip and fall and break her arm? And I, went to, and I just was able to sleep after that. I got up, I woke up the next morning. First thing I did was to run downstairs. I remember going past my mother in the kitchen out, to the, out into the garden. I don't know what thought, what is he doing? I went out, there was no ice. It was a cold day. It wasn't a warm, sunny day, but there was no ice. And I looked and it was amazing to me. How did this happen? But in that moment, I said, mm, still doesn't prove that God exists. It could be some kind of, you know, weird coincidence. I rolled over and went back to sleep, didn't I? Spiritually. Later on, my love of English literature, which is permeated with biblical themes and, and, and quotations, of course, from Chaucer all the way through to Samuel Beckett and T.S. Eliot. I knew because of the influence of the Bible in, in so many centuries of literature that the Bible is kind of like the book of books. So one day I would read it. I really would read this for myself. But of course I didn't. I just rolled over and went back to sleep. In India, I spent six months in India just before I, I was converted and I purchased an anthology of German literature when I was there. I liked some of the German novelists. And I ended up reading bits of Martin Luther's introduction to his commentary on Galatians, like, wow, who is this guy? And then his 95 theses, which were essentially kind of accusatory examples of corruption in the, in the, uh, the Germany of his day, in Saxony of his day, uh, which he nailed to the church. So I thought, wow, who is this guy? Uh, and it was full of spiritual stuff. Uh, I lived for a month at the foothills of the Himalayas, beautiful. And, but we only had two albums to listen to, which were on cassette tape, one of which was Bob Dylan's Slow Train Coming, which was uh, an album that he wrote after his, uh, you know, investigation and conversion to Christ. It contains a song called When You Gonna Wake Up. And literally, this was one of the kind of the lyrics that was pumping through our heads for that month. Do you ever wonder just what God requires? You think he's just an errand boy to satisfy your wandering desires? When you're going to wake up? When you're going to wake up? <clears throat> There's a man up on a cross and he's been crucified. Do you have any idea why or for who he died? When you're going to wake up? When you're going to wake up and strengthen the things that remain? I remember I had long conversations with a, a Swedish professor who was doing some study, research on comparative religions in India. And uh, in our conversation, Jesus is an egomaniac. He's an egomaniac. That's what he said. He, oh, Jesus, I am this and I am that and I am this. Come to me, come to me, come to me. And I knew he was wrong. I knew that Jesus that he was talking about wasn't the same as the Jesus that I didn't believe in. The Jesus that I didn't believe in wasn't an egomaniac. He was good and parents brought their, 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 their children to him. I had a strange conversation with a Hare Krishna guy uh, about the professor. And to my surprise, I thought he would say, yes, the professor has unresolved anger issues that he needs to sort through. He didn't. He waded in on the side of the professor against Christianity. And he said to me, just think about it. Think about it. What is the central symbol of Christianity? 
Central symbol. I couldn't think of it. He said, it's, it's the cross. It's death. Death. Death is the, the central symbol of Christianity, the cross. And I said, and honestly, I don't know where I got this from. I don't ever remember hearing it said. I said, but listen, a Christian might say that for them, the cross is the beginning of life. And when I said it, there was a strange sense of, I don't know, kind of resonance. That, that That's right. How do I know that? That feels... Now, I didn't fall down on my knees then and give my life to Jesus, nor did the Hare Krishna guy. We just went our separate ways and had a cup of tea. But something happened. It was a nudge. I'm being awakened. Something's going on. <clears throat> when I returned from India, a friend of mine uh, met me and surprised me by saying that he'd become a Christian. What? And to be honest with you, <coughs> he was so fervent about it that I thought, something bad has happened to this guy. <coughs> he's been taken in. So in my journal, I was writing about all this. I wrote, he's now a fully-fledged Christian, absolutely firm in his belief. We talked for hours. He really has had a revelation which he describes as being born again. But as with most Christians one meets, he is absolutely firm that his is the way. I was talking about truth being the goal, and there are many different angles from which it can be approached. Science, art, religion, the sects and cults, but they believe theirs is the only way. I, unfortunately, cannot accept that. I have a different concept of Christ or truth. I just thought he was at a vulnerable moment, maybe, and they, he let them in. I asked him for any books that they'd given him. I wanted to show him that this is nonsense. And I also kind of wanted to get at it myself. He gave me the Gospel of John and I began reading it very closely and very carefully. And I was looking for mistakes, contradictions that I knew would be there, I thought would be there. And I knew that it wouldn't take long. But getting to the Gospel of John was like coming to the primary source. It was like coming to an unfiltered, uncontaminated source. Didn't have all the trammels of the traditions and the robes and the stained glass windows and everything else that Christianity meant to me that put me off of the thing. I didn't think that at the beginning, oh, this is a pure source. But as I went through the gospel, I realized that I, I was coming to an unhindered or uninterrupted, by me mainly, uninterrupted view of Christianity, as though I was looking over the shoulder of one of the disciples and I was hearing it all for the very first time. Coming to Jesus himself, that was just a wonderful thing. Let, let me listen to him. And he would say things like this, Jesus, in John's Gospel. He says, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. Huh. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If you continue in my word, you will be my disciple. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I remember reading that for the very first time and thinking, well, I know that I don't actually have the truth. If I'm honest, I know I don't have the truth. 
And although I could travel all over the world and make a number of lots of different choices in front of me, even in that po at that point, I'm not really free in the way that I know he means it. Inside, I wasn't free. I read that Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, how can we know the way? And Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I read that and I tried to get round of the, around that a little bit by getting hold of different translations. Sneaky. And I got hold of uh, the Good News Bible. I don't know where I got it from. And I compared that with the one I was reading. And I realized, aha, one of them says, you come to the Father through me. The other one says, you go to the Father by me. Good News says, go to the Father by me. Now, that says something very different about Jesus' relationship to the Father. Is it come or is it go? Is it through Is it through or is it by? But I soon realized that was cheating. It's just cheating. It was obvious that the newer translation that I'd picked up was a kind of easy read version. So I had to go back again. In my journal, I wrote, I cannot challenge Christ. I cannot achieve a pure state because I have sinned and because I know there is sin in me. The only answer is that I go to Christ and make an offering of myself into his trust and love. But something stops me and I'm not sure what it is. I still don't know whether I want to believe. Boiled down, the result is selfishness, I living for self. I know this is wrong, but is Christ the way? Is this why I cannot actually believe? Thinking also, do I have to believe in Adam and Eve? Was Darwin from Satan? No, no, it's just too much. Am I being called by a power called God, or is this all working in the scope of my skull? Can I really disbelieve? Having searched for the absolute truth, must I now, in rejecting Christ, reject absolute truth? He says, I am the truth. In a letter to a friend about this time, I wrote, I've been meaning to write for a while, but some distraction or unworthy outlet has been interrupting me, such as my guitar or Yeats autobiography, W.B. Yeats, or the Gospel of John, which I'm reading with ever-widening eyes. Yes, in my search for truth, though it has taken some strange turns and twists, which have involved believing that there is an absolute truth, believing I glimpsed it, lost it, and forgot it, then believing that it's all part of the scheme to lose it and forget it, then realizing that, in fact, there is no absolute truth, and that all you can do is carry on living and try and do good, having love in your heart and in your motives. I have now, not finally, but in the course of my unusual travel, encountered a man who called himself the living bread, the living water. And finally, after about another week, I somehow made the transition. The glory of Christ had awakened me, was bringing me to life, seemed to be blazing upon me, and was finally irresistible. I wrote, and I shall say yes to Christ. Every day I'm getting closer. It's wonderful. It's bright and joyous. Joyous? I'm getting religious already. It's joyous. And it is real. That's the most amazing thing. 
I'm really getting there, dancing for joy. First of all, it was really hard going to break down my blind, stubborn atheism, which is blind and is stubborn, and to be fair, to say, okay then, all right, I'll read it. I accept the challenge. I'm getting closer. I must get there. I must not give up. These doubts that fly from the air shall disappear. I shall know the truth. I shall be free. And the following morning, about 10 a.m., having stayed up the whole night reading, I wrote, I feel today, the last 20 or so hours have been very important to me. It's been the first time the beautiful scheme of Christianity has truly entered my head. And the first glimpse of a relationship with Christ. For the first time, I have glimpsed the sense in things which I, I previously thought arrogant and arbitrary. <laughs> Amazing journey towards him. For me, the doorway to discovering Jesus, as you just heard, was a kind of pursuit of truth, which I know is a bit intellectual sounding, but I didn't stay in the lowlands of intellectualism for long. The love of God in Christ lifted me up into the heights and gave me such views of God's goodness and grace and his love that has just kept my heart full all these years, all these years. And it's a landscape that will take a lifetime to thoroughly imbibe and enjoy and revel in and play in. When Christ shines his light on you, it's so much more than the forgiveness of sins. It is the forgiveness of sins, but it's also resurrection into a new life. It's the whole thing. It's a wonderful thing. You need to think, am I ready? Am I ready to take that step of faith? Listen to C.S. Lewis's wonderful description of conversion. This is from one of his academic books, English Literature in the 16th Century. In the mind of a Tyndale or Luther, as in the mind of St. Paul himself, this theology was by no means an intellectual construction. It springs directly out of a highly specialized religious experience, that of catastrophic conversion. <laughs> the man who has passed through it feels like one who has waked from a nightmare into ecstasy. Like an accepted lover, he feels that he has done nothing and never could have done anything to deserve such astonishing happiness. All the initiative has been on God's side. All has been free, unbounded grace, and all will continue to be free, unbounded grace. Grace before, grace at the beginning, grace through to the very end. Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. I hope for you the death dreams are ended, that the darkness gives way to dawn breaking, that the light of Christ is breaking over you, and that Jesus is calling you, follow me. It's time. Follow me. He's a good shepherd, and he's calling you to follow. Will you follow? I wonder if we can pray together for a moment. I'm going to lead you in a prayer, and this is a very simple prayer in which you're just saying, Lord, here I am. 
Help me to respond. Help me to believe. Help me to follow you. I give myself to you in this moment. Should we, should we pray? And you can just repeat it after, after me if it helps. Lord Jesus, here I am. And just echo the words, here I am. You know my life. You know everything about me. I'm sorry for my sins, for the things I know that I've done wrong. And I ask for your mercy. I thank you that you died on the cross for me and you're alive again now. I choose to believe in you. Help me to follow you. Help me to respond to you. I give my life to you this day and ask you to come into my life. Lead me, guide me, and help me follow you for the rest of my days. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I pray.